Last Sunday, uh, we began a journey in the book of First Thessalonians, and we talked about that this was Paul's uh, second missionary journey. Uh, he had four uh, different missionary trips he took, and this was his first uh, foray into Europe. He left the continent of Asia and what we call kind of the Middle East, and he crossed over to Greece. And last week, we actually looked back in the book of Acts and saw that to the first place he landed and, and, and shared the gospel was in Philippi. And uh, he wasn't greeted there incredibly well. He was um, beaten and flogged and thrown in jail. And so we talked a little bit about that. We talked about the fact that um, while he was sitting in his jail cell, him and Silas were singing hymns of God, and God provided this earthquake that opened up the jail doors, and he was set free. Um, and then the people of Philippi politely escorted him out of town the next day. And they had picked up uh, a young man named Timothy. Um, and so they headed down towards the next city, which was Thessalonica. Thessalonica, we talked about, was a, a bustling, populous trade city, a port city. Um, and when they got there, they, they began preaching the gospel as well and, and got some converts um, and were there about three weeks before they were kicked out of town once again. And so we talked about Paul then moved on to the city of Corinth, and it had been a while, and he was kind of wondering how things were going back in Thessalonica, especially under such hostile environment that they were in. So he sent Timothy back um, to kind of check in on things. And last week, if we looked at chapter 1, Timothy comes back with this really great report. He says, man, the, the people in Thessalonica are really doing well. Their faith is just growing. And in fact, it's ringing out into that whole region. So other churches and other cities are being encouraged by the things that are going on in Thessalonica. And Paul is ecstatic. And we talked about how you could just see his passion, his excitement in his writing. And he's, he's like a, a father whose children have just gone out into the world and kind of grown in character and maturity, and he's just so proud of them. And even though there's a lot of great things going on in the city, there's also some troubling things as well. And one of those things is that Paul's character, he kind of gets word from Timothy that, that Paul, your character is kind of under fire. People are trying to kind of discredit you in your ministry. And so Paul kind of addresses that concern in chapter 2 today. So go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Page 824. Page 824. Now, I'm not a person uh, very often that really tries to defend myself. Uh, and as a pastor and a leader, um, all kinds of people have opinions about me. Um, I'm also a coach at a high school, so I've just got a lot of relationships and a lot of touch points where people see me um, and formulate opinions about me. And I know that sometimes people are upset by things I do and, and whatever, because I'm not perfect either. But I've kind of learned over time that if I tried to respond to every critical comment that somebody had about me, that that would just kind of be an endless circle, and I'd probably never still make everybody happy. And so what I try to do is just, you know, do the best I can to be obedient to God and faithful to Him and live my life and hope that over time that my character, you know, just kind of rises to the surface, hopefully, and people are going to make whatever opinion they have of me um, one way or the other. And really one of the other I'm okay with however people land on what they think about me because ultimately I know that my ultimate judge is God 
And so my ultimate responsibility is to try to be obedient and faithful to him and be concerned about what he thinks about me. So having said that, Paul was in a pretty difficult situation here because he was in a different city, but his character was being attacked over here in Thessalonica. And so he wasn't there to live his life and to allow his character kind of to kind of speak for itself. He was gone. And so he, felt, he feels like he kind of has to, to dive in here a little bit and kind of defend himself because he understands that, um, that this criticism, if, if his life is discredited, then the gospel might be discredited. Because at this time, people didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the living example of Paul. So if that's discredited, people might throw out the whole gospel. And so that's kind of what he's up against um, at this time. And uh, there's a lot at stake, okay? So let's look at verses 1 through 8 and and see what he says. In chapter 2, he says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. So Paul starts off with this reminder. He says to them, guys, you know. I mean, despite what my detractors might be saying right now, you know how we lived among you. Uh, when I was in your presence, don't forget about how we carried ourselves while we were there, even though we were under really strong opposition, okay? And then I love the subtle beginning to his defense in verse 2. He says, um, guys, remember, remember where we had just come from. We had been beaten and flogged in Philippi, yet we still came to you realizing that that same thing might happen to us there, okay? So if you're going to test our motives, remember that. And to bring this this home a little bit, I want us to think about the reality of what that might have looked like. Okay, Paul and Silas, it says, were beaten in Philippi. And I don't know what that meant. I don't know if they were beaten with rods or stoned or what they were. But I would imagine that there were some bruises, some swelling, maybe a, a broken bone. Who knows? And then it says that they were flogged. And Paul says in another scripture that he was flogged several different times, 39, uh, 40 lashes minus one. So 40 lashes with the cat of nine tails that they whipped Jesus with was supposed to kill somebody, okay? So they would do it 39 times and kind of push their luck, okay? So Paul and Silas's backs had literally been ripped to shreds. And so when Paul comes and Silas come riding in to Thessalonica or walking in or however they got there, segueing in, wouldn't that be kind of cool? You have to understand what they looked like. Physically beaten, bloody. The, the shirts that they wore, blood-stained as their backs are trying to heal. Okay? So this is how they walk into town. And those wounds would have been a constant reminder to the Thessalonians 
of the potential risk of believing in what it is that Paul and Silas and Timothy were sharing with them. And while that would have been a disturbing notion to consider, the fact that they were still willing to share this news about Jesus must have meant something. Like, this Jesus must be really amazing if you look like you do, yet you're coming to tell us more about him. Okay? So, to Paul, he's like, really, people? You're questioning my motives. Really? Okay? I'm not getting a lot out of this, personally. Okay? I came across this writing last night I wanted to share with you. I thought it was kind of humorous. It says, the average American encounters 3,000 commercial messages each day. I imagine through radio, TV, or signs on the side of the road, billboards. And because of this, we're programmed to think that life was supposed to be easy. It isn't. Life is supposed to be meaningful, and we can't gain a sense of meaning without conflict. When Jesus asks people to follow him, he's asking them to enter into a challenging, counterintuitive life. When Jesus says, I have come to give you life more abundantly, he's not talking about a life of comfort. He's talking about a life of meaning. He's calling us to the challenge of following him, a challenge so purposeful and hopeful that suffering for his sake becomes a reward. If we think of Jesus as a product that promises a comfortable life, we will always feel God is letting us down. The problem isn't that he's not doing what he promised. The problem is we misunderstood what he meant by an abundant life. Jesus is not a product that will make life perfect. He's a living being that wants a relationship, and relationships are hard. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul doing an infomercial for the product of Jesus? There he is on late night television pitching the product of Jesus, talking about how much the product has changed his life. Hi, I'm Paul, and I want to tell you about the product of Jesus. I used to have a job and money and friends and lots of power. And then I got the product of Jesus and lost my job, my friends, my money, and my power. Today I'm secretly shuffled from town to town where I'm routinely ridiculed, imprisoned, tortured, and occasionally bitten by snakes. You too can have the product of Jesus by calling 1-800. There could even be a doctor's warning at the end of the infomercial. The product of Jesus may cause temporary blindness. If your blindness lasts more than three days, seek medical attention. You see just the ridiculousness of of this idea of Paul and his motives being questioned when when all that he was enduring for the sake of sharing the gospel. And that whole scene um, looks a lot different than maybe the uh, the evangelist that we see in America. Maybe over the last 50 years. Usually when you see an evangelist on on TV, you see a a slick guy in a tailored suit in a sold-out stadium with this awesome band and these screens that are projecting his image so people can see it. And he's sharing about, you know, how amazing this relationship with, with God is, how he can change your life, the promises of heaven, and all of those things. Now imagine Paul coming into town broken and bloody. And with an amazing message of hope and love in Jesus but also with the reality that if you align yourself with Paul and receive that message, your back might be next. And it makes you think about what, what, what evangelism in our country might look like if Christianity was illegal. And, and let's say that it was illegal and, and these, these Christians broke out of jail, all right? So they're running, you know, in their chains and they just come to the first place and let's say that it's your office, and it's during lunchtime, and you're eating lunch with your coworkers, and these guys come in, and they start sharing with you this message of Christ. 
and the hope that they have in Jesus despite their circumstances and something happens in your heart and you're like, man, this Jesus is pretty compelling, right? They're in chains and they're a whole lot happier than me eating tuna salad right now, right? But you have to consider that, okay, so receiving this Jesus and aligning myself with these people might mean that I might be in jail the rest of my life. I wonder how many people would call themselves Christians if that were the case. It kind of makes you think a little bit. What would evangelism look like in our country then? Because when people heard Paul preach, they had to count the cost. Because there were was, was some real potential painful consequences of making that decision to be a Christian. And we can't lose sight of that. And after all they've been through in Philippi, Paul says, he says, but with the help of God, we came to you. And we shared that message as well. And I love the humility that Paul uses there. He says, you know, he realizes that, that it wasn't in his own strength. I mean, they were pretty beat up and broken at that point. And they're like, man, we might have chickened out if God hadn't helped us, right? And you hear that humility. He understood where his strength came from. <clears throat> I want to ask you a question. You got to think back to last week in the story, but how, how do you think Paul and Silas were able to pull themselves together after what happened in Philippi? And even though they, they miraculously broke out of jail, what else might have encouraged them? Do you remember what happened after that? Kind of the last thing that happened before they left town. Come on, people. It's like finals week here. You got to activate the hamsters. Yes, Zach. They did what? Yeah, the jailer, they, they, they shared Christ with him, and he came to Christ. His whole family did. They invited him over for dinner. So, thank you. That's my son, by the way. <laughs> um, just imagine how encouraging that must have been. You know, you, you go to Philippi. Yeah, you get some converts, but you're kind of beaten and broke down. You see God do this miraculous thing, but just before he sends you out to the next town, he says, hey, guess what? I'm going to let you experience this. And this jailer becomes the Christ and invites you over for dinner. And not only did he invite you over for dinner, but he also took care of your wounds. It says in the Bible that they, they cared and cleaned up Paul and Silas's wounds. They just he ministered to Paul and Silas and encouraged them to go to the next town, whatever might come their way. And man, that had to put some wind in their sails, you know? God's gracious provision for them. And part of the strong opposition that Paul faced in in Thessalonica was that the reality that in this bustling city on this major trade route, there were so many competing religions. And with those competing religions, there were leaders that were using that platform for greed and gain. And one commentator had this to say about uh, just Greece in general at that time. He says, there's probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the believing and the skeptical. Man, you had Greek gods, Roman gods, Egyptian gods, philosophers of all kinds, and each one of them were trying to, each one of them had an agenda. They were trying to figure out how do you make a buck using religion and trying to discredit anybody else that came to town with a new, a new message that might cut in on their profit share, right? And so they see Paul and they think, huh, you know, 
He's getting beaten and bloody, but people are signing up for that. There might be some power in that, so we need to kind of bash him if we can and see if we can knock him down a little bit. So in verses 3 through 7, three, three through seven as you read, there's a, a list of false charges being brought against Paul, and, and it's kind of summarized them here. These are all the different things people are saying about Paul, that he's got this, you know, he was arrested in the previous town, that he's, he's delusional, he's, his ministry is based on impure motives, and, and on and on. You can read through the list there. So Paul feels like he needs to respond, and so the major point that he makes, first of all, in verse 4, is he says that we are men approved by God. And that's a pretty bold claim to say God approves of us. I don't know about you guys, but how do, how do they know that? Well, for one thing, they literally had the approval of the apostles in Jerusalem. The, 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 what was left of the disciples, the guys that had, were eyewitnesses of Jesus, had put their stamp of approval on Paul and said, this guy's good. We're going to send him out representing us, representing Christ. So he had their approval, but he also just had fruit. Things were happening. People's lives were changing. It was obvious that God was blessing them. He was providing for them, like we just talked about, comforting them, encouraging them, um, just doing miraculous things to, to show that he was with them, okay? And when you think about it, all ulterior motives like flattery and greed, you know, them trying to benefit from this ministry, were really thrown out with the presence of the bloody scars on their backs, their missionary calling wasn't to a comfortable and glamorous life. They weren't getting rich on Jesus, okay? To follow Jesus and spread his good news was a call to die. Spiritually, economically, socially, and maybe physically, literally die. And so what I took out of that truth was this thought that we really need to test people who share the gospel with us. You know, when you hear people talking about Jesus, we need to ask some questions like, is that person, what, what's their story? Have they been through some battles? Are there some scars in their life? Have they been tested? Because it was easy to look at Paul and the life he endured and then the redeeming message of Jesus that he, he sent out. And it's easy to look at him and say, man, that guy was legit, okay? I mean, his motives were pure. This guy really loved Christ. There's no doubt and finally, in addressing the charges against Paul, we see him asserting that he wasn't concerned with the praise of men. His needs for identity and security and acceptance were found in Christ. So that when he went to these towns, he didn't have to have the praise of men to feel okay about what he was doing. It, it, his, his satisfaction or his success didn't depend on the response he got from people. He knew what he was doing, what God called him to do. And that people were either going to respond or they weren't. And that wasn't for him to worry about. And it had to have been really tempting at times for him to want some approval and acceptance. You know, when you're getting your rear kicked from town to town, to have some people pat you on the back once in a while and say, hey, man, we're with you. You're doing a great job. You know, that had to be tempting. But he didn't demand that from people. And I want to use the rest of our time this morning to really hone in on one of my all-time favorite verses, which is verse 8. Let's look at that verse again. It says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And I want to talk about the second half of that verse first. <clears throat> Last week we talked about Paul's constant invitation to people. Do you remember? His constant invitation was, hey, come and imitate my life. Come and follow me as I follow the example of Christ. And then I asked us the question, 
And some of us, even that have been Christians for a long time, I asked us, have you ever given somebody that invitation? Have you ever invited somebody to imitate you or to come and follow you? And we talked about how only a couple people in the room raised their hand and said, yeah, I've done that. And so we started talking about, well, why? What's the hindrance? What's the barrier? Why don't we do that? And really, our comments really boiled down to a focus on our own perceived ability. We, we, we focused on our flaws, we focused on our fears, and, and probably this sense that I don't even really know if my life is really worth imitating when I think about it, okay? So, so we talked about those things, but a lot of them were, were pretty self-focused, or we thought, well, that's kind of an arrogant thing to say, to say to somebody else, oh, imitate me, you know, like I'm something. And while all those are legitimate fears or concerns, I wonder if there's a deeper reason there as well. I wonder if, if this idea has ever crossed our mind or this reality is that inviting another person to imitate your life demands a commitment of time. It's more than just a, imparting information to other people in, in a Bible study on a Wednesday night or Sunday school, you know, on Sunday morning with, for a prescribed amount of time, an hour or two hours a week. It's, it's giving people access to your life. Access. And access demands time and space. And we've talked a lot recently about Jesus. A lot of the scholars feel like during his three-year ministry that he probably spent half of that time just, just with his 12 disciples. Just investing in them and, and, and giving them access to his life. They ate together. They walked together. They played hacky sack together. That's a joke. They sat around and they scratched their heads and they said, why did the Chiefs draft D Ford with the first pick? And then they had these conversations together, okay? But they knew each other, right? They knew Jesus, Jesus knew them. And the more time you spend with people, the more the true you is exposed, So it's part of the reason why we don't ask people to imitate our life, that we don't have margin or space to invite people into. And when we do create time for another person, are we more concerned that they only see our best sides? And why was Paul delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but his life as well? What does he say? He said, because we love them. Because we loved you. That's interesting. Could it be, could it be true that a lack of access to my life is communicating to someone else a lack of love for them? Is it communicating that my life, my needs, my schedule, my demands are more important than investing in you? Something to think about. We shared not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Because guys, sharing your life with somebody else, loving other people, is risky. It's going to cost you something. There's going to be some scars probably from doing that. I want you to check out 1 Peter one twenty-two. He says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. 
Do we love the people in this church community? Not just your family, your husband, wife, kids, friends here, but like, do you love people here? And some of you might be thinking, love them? I don't even know them. To which I would say, well, whose responsibility is that? We're supposed to love one another deeply. When it comes to loving others, to creating space in our life for people in need, to inviting people in and giving them access to our lives, here's, here's one of the, the biggest excuses that I hear. Capacity. I just don't have time. I don't have the capacity to, to love anybody else. I'm stretched, man. I mean, what's going on at home and the kids and the family that I have, is, that's just more than I can handle. Or I hear, you know, God hasn't really wired me to, to love a lot of people. My capacity is not very big. You think I'm a fan of that excuse? No. Because my problem is this, is that that line of thinking, usually those comments are made through the lens of our own ability. Usually when people make that comment, they think, okay, this is what I can handle, and, and, and all they're doing is thinking about in my strength, this is what I can do. This are, these are how many people I can have in my life. And I want to tell you guys that God is in the business of expanding your capacity to love and to serve others. If he brings people into your life who are, are humble, they're teachable, they're hungry for more of God, they're open to your influence in their life, he will give you whatever it is that you need to serve them, to love them, to share the gospel with them. He will expand that because that's exactly what he wants happening in this world. And now I'm not, I'm not advocating that, that you give away all of your time and you, you schedule in all these appointments with all these people you know, and just kill yourself in the process because even Jesus understood that there was balance there. Right When he would minister and sometimes thousands of people would come to hear him or to line up to be healed by him, right after a season of abundance and where their capacities were really stretched, he would take them and pull them out and say, guys, we're going to go to the other side of the lake and be alone for a while. We need to recoup. We need to spend some time with the Father and with one another and just relax and abide in God and rest so that we can be enlarged again to meet the needs of the people. And guys, we constantly walk this tension between what we can handle in our own strength and what we can handle with God who says, with me all things are possible. And, and, we, and we, we vacillate between those things constantly. And, and God wants to push us more and more towards understanding what it means to live in and operate where we really need him each day. And we're feeling a little bit stretched and a little bit overwhelmed at times. And the litmus test in this imitation calling is our love for other people. How well do we love people? Do we love them enough to make time for them? Do we love them enough to maybe cut out some things to be available, to be living examples of the good news? So I ask you these things because I want you to think about some, maybe some ways in which you can pray. We've talked about this whole idea here for the last two weeks of, of imitating people. Okay, and so for one, one, maybe you're in a place where you really need somebody that you can imitate. So I want you to pray this week, if that's you, and say, man, I really need somebody. 
God, show me who it is that, that and, and then go to that person and say, can I, can I imitate your life? Will you give me some access to your life? Will you make some space for me? Man, I'm hungry. I, I want to be a better follower of Christ, and I see something in you that I know I'm missing, and I want that. Or is it time for you to look to somebody else and say, hey, come, follow me, imitate me. I'm going to make some space for you in my life. I want to be an example to you. Because guys, listen, the fundamental call for all Christians, right? Jesus, one of the last things he said to his disciples was he said, go and make disciples until the ends of the earth. And so being a Christian is being a disciple, a follower, and making disciples. That's our fundamental call, to be Christians and to make other Christians, followers of Jesus. And so that's what our life needs about, and that demands access. It demands time. It demands space and availability. And if that is our fundamental call, then we have to believe that God will give us whatever we need in order to do that. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's example. We thank you that he understood that this was more than just communicating truth about Jesus. It was more than starting churches. <laughs> it was about love and, and sharing life with people. And, and, and with courage and fear mixed together, saying to other people, hey, come, imitate me, follow me. I know that you're hungry for this Jesus message. And when you call people to follow you, it's, it's, you're not telling them that life is going to be great and perfect or you've got everything figured out. We have, we have to remember that when Paul said this, come and follow me, when people looked at Paul, they were like, man, I don't know. <laughs> you're, getting, you're getting beat up pretty bad. But there was something compelling about Paul's life that even despite the outward appearance of how difficult that might have looked, they still wanted Jesus. Is there something compelling about our life? Not that it's perfect or that there aren't trials or we're not bloodied and scarred at times for being a Christian, but is there something compelling even in the midst of that, a hope that we have, a joy that we have despite our circumstances that draws other people in and says, man, I want that. God, help us to be people that live a compelling life, a life that draws other people to you. And God, help us this week as we consider who we might need to imitate, who we might ask to imitate us. God, knowing that that's, that's our call as Christians. We need to be doing that always, always looking to, to who's a little bit farther down the road that I can learn from, and who am I a little bit farther down the road from that can learn from me, and that we have those two ongoing relationships constantly, helping one another become more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.